You're listening to the Phillies Nation podcast with Ty Daubert and Johnny Heller on philliesnation.com. What's going on, everybody? Johnny Heller here, host of the Phillies Nation podcast, coming at you with another episode. Um, This week, we're going to talk about the 2019 Phillies. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ty Daubert. Um, and an- another special guest this week, Ty, would you like to introduce the guest? I sure would. Uh, like Johnny said, I am Ty Daubert, and I would like to introduce to everyone um, someone who has been on this podcast before on one of these episodes, but we're having Tim Kelly, um, editorial director of Phillies Nation and writer for Radio.com on the podcast. Tim? How's it going? You excited to talk about the 2019 Phillies? I feel like the the last two years were such a, like, so much happened that this is almost necessary to have this year where maybe there's no baseball just to kind of break free and start fresh. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't agree. There's no there's no scenario in which having not having any baseball is welcome. I, I need I need more events to happen, more chaos and and confusion. But I mean, maybe we were getting past that at the end of the Gabe Kapler era, anyways. But they, any yeah, they, any they wanted to get rid of all the chaos. Yeah. All right, um, Johnny, you want to get us started in our 2019 Phillies talk? Uh, we'll dive into the off season, I guess. That was kind of the big storyline for all of the the season last year. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess we'll get started with uh, the first big move uh, that McClintock made last offseason, which happened um, in early December. So up to this point, it really looked like uh, Carlos Santana was going to be the um, opening day third baseman for the Phillies because um, they seemed pretty set on moving Reese Hoskins to first because he was you know, one of the worst defensive left fielders all time. So, uh, like, like I said, up to this point, it looked like if Santana was going to be on the team, he was going to be a third baseman. But uh, that kind of that idea went away when they traded Santana along with uh, J.P. Crawford to the Seattle Mariners for um, Gene Segura, Juan Nicasio, and James Pazos. Um, you know, I think at the time, everyone thought this was a great trade. Segura coming off you know, a decent year. I think his best career year was in 2016 in Arizona, but he had three or four consecutive years of, of playing solid defense and um, was a pretty good hitter. Yeah, it, it looked pretty clear at the time, at least we thought, that uh, this was a win for the Phillies. And in hindsight, it's not exactly that clear. The Mariners ended up flipping uh, Santana back to the Cleveland Indians, where he then had the best year of his major league career. And Gene Segura was not, he was not as great for the Phillies. Um, no, it wasn't an awful year by, by any stretch, but it, it, um, you know, it, it didn't seem to be as much of a, a steal as people might've thought at the beginning. I do think that a, a year from now, this trade's going to be viewed differently, though, because the reality is there was almost no other scenario where the Phillies didn't have to eat money in Carlos Santana's contract. And, uh, you know, I told people for the year that Carlos Santana was here that 
metrics showed that he got super unlucky. Last year, he things swung in the other direction, and he outperformed a lot of his metrics. So in all likelihood, he's going to settle somewhere in between this year. He's a good player. Phillies fans that didn't think he was a good player were insane. But I think you also have the other effect with Gene Segura, who I think is destined to have a bounce-back season. Now, where he fits in defensively in 2020 and beyond, that's a fair question to have. But I I still think he is a valuable offensive piece and someone that is going to have a much better season in 2020 than he did in 2019. Yeah, I think think the offense could be better whenever they play again next. because he, he did have a down year offensively in 2019. But I think what does hurt this trade a bit is the fact that it doesn't seem like he's ever going to really play shortstop again for the Phillies. And who knows if D.D. Gregorius is back after this season. Um, and, you know, they, they traded for Segura to play shortstop. They, they needed a shortstop after having um, just really bad production from that position in 2018 and I think it hurts the value of that trade and it it hurts the team a little bit that it doesn't seem like Segura is going to be a shortstop in in the field anymore yeah I don't know that he won't be a shortstop again now I'm not sure it's a good idea to have him play shortstop but the Phillies right or wrong seem hell-bent on Scott Kingery playing second base long term And I think there is a very real chance that the Phillies view Didi Gregorius in the same way that the Braves view Josh Donaldson last year, where if you get a good bounce back year, that's great. And anything after that is kind of icing on the cake. I don't know that they will re-sign Didi Gregorius or even that they should long term. And if Didi Gregorius is not here next year and you really want Scott Kingery to play second base, I think there's a very real chance that next season Gene Segura ends up back at shortstop and you have Alec Bohm at third base. Now, I'm not sure that's going to be a very good fielding infield, but uh, you are, I think, going to have a chance to have Gene Segura back there at some point. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, that might not be a great um, defensive infield. And I think that's, like, Segura, even if he starts to hit again, you he's on – contract for the next three years 14 million dollars a year and i think that hurts them a little bit um you know even even if he's hitting a little bit he's not gonna uh like he's if he's playing shortstop he's not gonna be a great shortstop and if he he's playing third base you know he doesn't his batting profile is is nowhere near you know even the average maybe close to the average third baseman but it's it's a below average for for a third baseman in um, today's league so i think that's um the real issue but I do agree that there's probably a bounce back in play to some extent there. Um, so to uh, moving on in the off season, um, just a few days later, this is a more minor trade that um, really, really paid off for, for Matt, Clint, Matt Clintac. Um, I think we've seen that he's um, pretty good at making moves around the fringes of the roster. And this was a prime example of that. Uh, he traded Luis Garcia, who was coming off a, a really, really bad uh, 2018 to the Angels for Jose Alvarez, who Alvarez had a tough start uh, to the 2019 season for the Phillies, but he really, really settled in and was really their, other than Hector Neris, was their most reliable reliever uh, for the whole season. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty much just a, a straight steal for the Phillies. Uh, like you said, 
the beginning of the year for for Alvarez was awful. It was pretty awful uh, for a while. You know, he had to even when he started to uh, get good near the middle of the season uh, there or once the season got going. It's still for a lot of people. I feel like it took him a little bit of time to actually uh, earn some trust with with the fans because it just it was not too not too good at the at the start. So it took a little while, but definitely by the end of the year, he was he was really good for the Phillies. Uh, down the stretch, him and and Ranger Suarez were, were two left-handed relievers that they could really rely on, and then. They had closer Hector Neris as well. Like you said, uh, Luis Garcia, they they wouldn't have been – like maybe he would have gotten some innings for the Phillies, but they would not have been able to to ride him like they did with Alvarez down the stretch. So I just want to reiterate what you said. That was a really, really good trade. Yeah, it, it might be the best trade of the Matt Klintak era. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but – Uh, Luis Garcia is one of those guys that you feel like could put it together at any year, but he's approaching his mid thirties now and he's never put it together and didn't put it together in his first year with the angels. So it felt like he needed a change of scenery and instead of non-tendering him or just kind of giving him up for nothing, they got a really valuable reliever and a left-handed reliever. And I don't really know why the angels made this trade, But even if you only get last year and whatever 2020 turns into Jose Alvarez, you won that trade. And if you're able to re-sign him and he remains a valuable contributor, you absolutely fleece the Angels. Yeah, definitely. Um, So to move on, I'm going to couple these these, uh, two free agent signings together because, um, you know, the Phillies, one of the things that I think Matt Klintak was looking for was durability. Um, so, you know, he, he valued that over maybe guys who, um, had potential to have great years, but also have, have had injury history. So, um, first he signed Andrew McCutcheon, uh, to a three year, $50 million deal. Um, you know, another option there in left field would have been Michael Brantley, who, like I said, uh, another good player, but has not been durable throughout his career. Meanwhile, McCutcheon never really been hurt. I think he was on the DL once in in Pittsburgh, but uh, really just always played, and that backfired for the Phillies, of course, when he tore his ACL in June. And then the other guy, they signed David Robertson. Um, again, always healthy, always reliable, um, pretty solid reliever in New York, and that backfired too. And he, you know, I think he he appeared in like five or six games last year, and um, they were hoping he'd he'd come back late this season. But you know, two somewhat expensive signings that kind of backfired, especially considering you know what the what Clentac and the Phillies were were valuing highly in these players. Yeah, definitely. There, there's nothing like signing players for you know a, a large reason of it. There ability to stay on the field and then they don't stay on the field for you um so definitely some tough breaks for the Phillies there um especially because uh, I think in the in the case of McCutcheon in particular I don't know if anyone else was going to be giving him a deal that big uh and the Phillies they did it and uh 
he he was great at the start for the Phillies uh, in the leadoff role, playing left field and a little bit of center, but it just didn't it didn't work out, and it it was a big hit to them that he ended up going down uh, in in that type of fashion and was gone for the rest of the season. And, and Robertson's another one; they're paying him a lot of money. They they expected him to be if not the closer, uh, somebody who could take down a lot of beginnings for them. And it just didn't work out that way. Uh, it, it feels like a lot of 2019 was just them having ideas of, of how things might play out. And in theory, it, it could have looked good, but uh, just on the field, it didn't work out for them in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I think one of the themes so far of the Matt Klentak era is signings that made sense or trades that made sense in theory that the Phillies just kind of got screwed on. I know Clay Buckholz and Charlie Morton had injury histories, but the year after they left the Phillies, Charlie Morton exploded and he had already kind of shown signs of that velocity increase. Clay Buckholz had some success with the Diamondbacks. He barely pitched for the Phillies. And then you look at the two guys they signed in uh, David Robertson and Andrew McCutcheon and, I still think one of the benefits maybe of a delayed season is that David Robertson makes an impact this season when he probably otherwise wouldn't have. So the jury's still out to a degree on that, but it kind of reminds me of the Mike Adams signing where you sign a really good reliever and it's just bad luck health-wise. Andrew McCutcheon last year was excellent before he got hurt. Obviously, I think he brought an edge that kind of reminded me of Aaron Rowan or Pat Burrell like, or Jason Worth like one of these guys that is a really, really good clubhouse guy and you kind of feel like is just a, a winner and someone you need in your clubhouse. I worry, though, that his deal is going to age the way that Raul Abanez's deal aged, where Raul Abanez was unreal his first half of his first season with the Phillies and wasn't really great after that, was a great clubhouse guy. Fans loved him. Uh, for different reasons. Abanez was in his late 30s. McCutcheon is not there, but physically, we'll see how he bounces back. If he is like how he was at the beginning of last season, there's a ton of value. I mean, he, he was vastly outperforming his deal last year in the first half of the season. He may have been an all-star if he stayed healthy. So if he's able to return to that form, then the Phillies are in good shape. If he's not, then they're not. Yeah, and I think I think at the time when, when they gave McCutcheon $50 million, everyone thought it, it might have been a little pricey. But like you said, um, he was really, really good last year. Um, and I think he was – I mean, in, in 2018, he was he struggled for most of – or for a lot of 2018. Not struggled, but probably his career – some of his career worst in San Francisco. And then he went to uh, New York and kind of – exploded there and 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 had a little bit of a revival and you know I think his just when you when you look at Andrew McCutcheon as a player and just um what he's good at you know a really professional plate approach um a, a high on base percentage you know I think even after this injury I think some a lot of that will still be there um you know maybe he he'll he'll slug a little bit less and I think he'll be a little slower and and not as good a, a fielder but I think you know he's was a gold glove in center field, so he'll still be a solid left fielder. Um, so, yeah, even if he's a little bit worse than he was last year, the, the deal won't age horribly. Um, and then as with Robinson, or sorry, Robertson, it's just a matter of will he 
ever pitch again, really, for the Phillies. And and like you said, he he may, um, given there's a season and and it goes into October, November. Um, so moving on. Uh, so obviously, while all of this was going on, there was all the Harper watch. Um, but you know the the Phillies connected to Bryce Harper all th- through the offseason and Manny Machado. You know they were kind of connected to everyone, every free agent. Um, and w- one guy they weren't really connected to, um, and this was through trade for much of the offseason, uh, was JT Realmuto, who I think the Marlins had been shopping probably since the prior offseason, and then again at the deadline, um, and they just never really got an offer that I guess they deemed worthy. Um, so I think you know in, in January February they had reportedly lowered their asking price and I guess it was to a point that the Phillies felt was uh, reasonable so I think in early February rumors started coming up that the Phillies were connected to this uh, you know JT Romito and then on February 7th they they actually completed a trade so it was Jorge Alfaro and their top pitching prospect Sixto Sanchez and then another minor leaguer Will Stewart uh, in exchange for Real Muto, who was pretty clearly the the best catcher in baseball. Yeah. Um. As soon as the reports came out that the Phillies were connected to him, to me it felt like uh like they were probably going to be really in on getting him and had a, a really good chance of getting him. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think for a lot of the off season maybe the Dodgers were connected to him and maybe. Uh, the Braves and and Dodgers, other teams. Dodgers are connected to everyone. Who do they that's, ever actually sign? I mean, they did just trade for. They Mookie did Betts. trade for Mookie Betts. That's true. But no, I I mostly agree. They are uh, frauds. They do get yeah. con- they do get connected <laughs> to a lot of, to a lot of players. Um, Harper being being one of them, and uh, but they but the Phillies as soon as it came out, I I just had a feeling that. Um, you know, they, they might really be in on him. And I, I think that Harper liking Rio Muto maybe had a part in it. And also at the same time, they just wanted to, uh, they just wanted to improve their team, which, which they did. Uh, now they have to most likely sign him to an extension or, or he'll walk away, which, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't the greatest move long-term depending how that extension, if they sign him to one might age, but they, they definitely helped their team on the field by, uh, by trading for him in 2019. And, uh, he, he was really good last year, obviously, like, like Johnny said, but, um, but yeah, this, um, this was in spring training, uh, when, when this trade went down, we, we were really close to baseball and it was uh it was it, it was interesting to to watch it all play out and then you know once they got real muto it felt like all right all eyes were on Harper at this point. Yeah, and I don't think there's any question that JT Real Muto was the best player on the Phillies last year, including Bryce Harper. And if he stays in Philadelphia beyond this year, he has a chance to be a Wall of Famer and maybe even the best catcher in the history of the organization. But I I think what you guys have said is right. And you guys have been on this probably before a lot of other people. If JT Realmuto has two or three 
seasons where we look at him as the best catcher in baseball and then a few nice ones after that. But the Phillies don't have team success. And Sixto Sanchez ends up being either a frontline starter or an elite closer. You're really going to have to look in the mirror, especially since that's going to be for a division rival, at least initially, and wonder whether that trade made the most sense for where you were at as your franchise. There is no debate about JT Real Muto, the player. There can be debate about how you structure your roster to try to win a championship. Yeah, and I think you know at the time of this trade, I was, or you know, when when the Real Muto stuff started coming out that the Phillies were connected to him, I didn't fully understand it because it's not like Jorge Alfaro was great, but he was he was fine. And and when you look at like in general, catchers don't really hit for the most part. So um, upgrading there when you know the the rotation was a mess. And, you know, you have other holes on the roster. It just didn't make complete sense to me. Um, you know, they, they could have traded for a guy like James Paxton or or, or another, you know, mid to front line starter or, or something else and signed Yasmani Grandal if they were really looking for an upgrade at catcher. Um, who I, I don't remember exactly what the deal was last year with the Brewers, but it was it was one year, like, what, 14, 15 million, maybe a little higher, but um and he's, yeah, it wasn't much. It wasn't much. Uh, and, yeah, basically, right now the Phillies are stuck. They either have to give Real Muto an extension that's uh, going to be, you know, huge, probably, what, what do we think, like five or six years, $120 million-ish. Uh, when he's, he's it's going to start when he's entering his age 30 season. And, you know, catchers probably age worse than any other position. Um it's that's going to be a risk or they let him walk and they gave up their best pitching prospect for really two a year and a half, two years of depending on how this season plays out of um, a, a great player. But like Tim said, it, it just might not have made the most sense for what the team needed at the time. Yeah, and I don't even remember them being in on Grandal like at all. Wilson Ramos was a free agent that off season as well. And they really weren't in on, on him either. Um, maybe he, he definitely didn't make as much, uh, sense defensively, but, um, still good production out of the catcher position. And just for a while, it, it seemed like they weren't really trying to, um, upgrade that position in, until like February of last year. So it, it was kind of surprising um and, and like like we all said it just may not have may not have made the most sense um it, that's not that's not saying anything about Rio Muto as a player he's obviously very good but catchers just they don't typically age well and uh it, it's tough to give up your top prospect if um if you know maybe long term it might end up not being the best move yeah um yeah, so we can uh, move on to the biggest move of the offseason, uh, which came, I think, late February, like the 27th or 28th. Uh, yeah, it was the the yeah. news broke on the 28th. And I think a week and a half before maybe Manny Machado had signed with the Padres, not too long before, um, for Machado was, was it 10, 300, 10 years, 300 million? Yeah, yes. 10, 300. Um. So at that point, I think um, Phillies fans were getting really frustrated because 
it's like all right we team missed out on on the one big free agent if they miss out on the other one they they came out of here came out of this offseason empty-handed even though they had obviously already made some other additions um but john Heyman, it was a thursday john Heyman tweeted bryce to the phillies and um Philly's Twitter exploded. I remember uh, walking out of my risk management final and my phone was like blowing up uh, with the news. And then, um, you know, the details started to come out. First, it was the 330 million number. And I think people thought, you know, maybe nine or 10 years. And then the the 13 year number came out, um, which I think was a surprise to a lot of people because it came out to a, a substantially less lower annual value annual average value than Machado, but um, it was clear Harper wanted to be in, in one place for a long time. And yeah, that, that was the Harper signing. I remember, I remember that day on Twitter, like before the signing happened, there's a lot of melting down. I think there's a, a large sentiment amongst uh, Phillies fans and people who cover the team and things like that, that it for like that day specifically, like in the morning, I think it, it just felt like maybe they weren't going to get him. And I think a lot of people all offseason were convinced that Harper would end up with the Phillies. You know, there was the the flights out to out to Vegas that Phillies owner John Middleton took. Uh, just so much stuff connecting them. And then it was that day that people were like, well, he's not coming to Philadelphia. So there's a lot of melting down. And then in the afternoon, the the news broke and it was like Johnny said, it was wild. And then I think, um, I think late that night that, you know, nothing was official. The Phillies were playing a, a spring training game when the news broke, I think. And they, uh, the broadcast brought out Jim Salisbury to confirm it. And they, they talked to Gabe Kapler after the game and stuff and all his answers were like if these reports are true then he was uh just answering everything like that but but then late at night i think the phillies twitter account tweeted something like uh like we got him or something and they made it they made it official um but yeah that was definitely a very memorable day a big day for the phillies and one that was interesting to to follow yeah it, it absolutely was uh in the first season, which I certainly don't think was going to be the best season, I think Bryce Harper would have been an MVP candidate this year, and that's a season he will never get back, and that's one of the unfortunate realities about this. One of the other unfortunate realities is the Phillies backed themselves into a situation where they almost had to sign Bryce Harper, and to do that, it required giving him a 13-year deal, or at least they thought it required giving him a 13-year deal because that's how they chose to structure the contract or how both sides did. And as much as I think the first six or seven years of that deal are going to be good, I, I see a lot of people on Twitter and other places saying, yeah, we still got him for 12 more years. And I just, I, I really do wonder if at age 36 and 37, people are still going to feel that way because most players do not age especially well. One of the things I wrote about when Bryce Harper was a free agent is, hey, you know, I do kind of wonder with how violent his swing is, how is his back and midsection going to age? That's a legitimate concern. And 
I, I think this signing is going to work out extremely well for the first half. Bryce Harper is going to be a wall of famer. He'll probably hit his 500th home run with the Phillies. Lots of incredible memories. But one of the realities is by the time you get to the second half of Bryce Harper's deal, you have to be in a position where you are churning out young talent to supplement it. Because one of the reasons you had to sign Bryce Harper is you weren't developing blue chip players and teams in your division like the Nationals and the Braves were consistently doing that. You have to be in a position where in the final half of Bryce Harper's deal, yeah, maybe he's still a, a valuable player that's hitting fifth or sixth for you, whatever the case is. But when he's not Bryce Harper at his peak anymore, your team doesn't go down the tubes or require giving someone else a $400 million or $300 million contract to make up for the fact that you're not consistently developing elite talents on your own. Definitely. I think like it's it's so unsustainable to just, you know, this offseason people were talking about trading for Chris Bryant and extending him. And that's just it's just such an unsustainable way to build a team like signing free agents and, and trading for guys and not, you know, calling up blue chip talent like like you mentioned the the Braves have been able to do and the Nationals have been able to do um so I mean there's a lot to be said about uh you know the the fact that during their last run it was mostly guys who came through the system and a couple guys they acquired cheap and like Shane Victorino and um who's a rule five guy and, and Jason Worth you know finding these guys who are really good without paying them 200 300 million dollars um and I think another interesting thing is it ended up being 13 years, but I remember reading about like the negotiations, and it, it's they started by offering a 20-year, 330 million dollar contract, which seems kind of absurd. Um, and they I don't said, know like, the players' association would have allowed that deal to go through. Right, it would have been borderline like deferring money, basically. Yeah, and I remember in the the um you know the whatever the little documentary they made on NBC Sports uh, signing Harper. I think, I think it was. we've all watched that about 15 times by now. Yeah. During rain delays. And I think they, uh, I think they said in, in that um, there was serious talks about like a 15 year deal, which they moved down as well. Um, uh, something that, that I just wanted to say about the length of the deal was there's a lot of talk about um, Machado and Harper that they were so young. I think 26, uh, during that off season where a lot, most stars that hit free agency, um, you know, you sign them to a 10 year deal, but they're already 30 ish years old and it just doesn't, it doesn't age. Well, you look at Albert Pujols and, and players like that. Um, and the advantage of signing these guys to maybe an eight or 10 year deal, uh, was they were younger. You're going to get better production. They're not going to be 40 when it ends. They'll be 26, or sorry, 36, 37. And the Phillies kind of got rid of the advantages of that. Yeah, it brought the the average annual value down a little bit. But like Tim said, you're going to, you know, the Padres aren't going to be paying Manny Machado when he's 38, 39 years old because the contract will be over, whereas the Phillies will still be paying Bryce Harper $25 million a year uh, when he's that age. So definitely some some drawbacks to the to the contract. But like like we said, they needed to do it. Um, they they needed more talent on their team and they did get it done. 
Well, and one of the things I would say, just adding on to that, is Machado can opt out after year five. And I think if Bryce Harper wanted to opt out, he could have got it after year three or year four. And beyond, I understand why he didn't want to continue. I mean, Bryce Harper's played his entire career, essentially, with people saying, oh, is he going to go to the Yankees? Is he going to go to the Phillies? Is he going to go to the Cubs? And I, I understand why he got sick of that. But can you imagine, let's say Bryce Harper played here three or four years, had great seasons, and then did opt out after that deal, and whether they re-signed him or he left or whatever the case may be, it, it just it would have been a cloud over his tenure here. We'd already be having the discussion. Is Bryce Harper going to opt out after 2022 or whatever the season would have been? It would have been nauseating and exhausting to have. And there is something enjoyable about knowing for better or for worse, he's here and you won't have to deal with that. Now, one of the realities is if Bryce Harper had been able to opt out after year three or year four, you would have had the option theoretically to just say, we think we just got your peak years. We're not giving you another 10 year deal and not have to live with any of the lean years. The reality though, is that if Bryce Harper had had three or four insane years for the Phillies, he would have had them uh, with no leverage because if the Phillies let 30 year old Bryce Harper walk, even if they had to give him a 12 year deal to stay, it, it would have been mayhem in the city. Yeah, definitely. I, I do remember, I think the Dodgers offered him like four years, 160 million, which would have shattered the um, AAV record. But um, like you said, you know, he he his whole career he had he had spent people wondering where he would go next, and now everyone knows where he'll be until you know the 2030s, which is crazy to think about. Um, but I guess now we can actually move into the regular season. Um, that was definitely one of the most, if not the most active Phillies off seasons, like of all time, they replaced four position players. Um, although they did not make any uh, changes in the starting rotation, which I, I think surprised a lot of people. Um, especially when you, I guess we can, we can talk about this quickly before we dive into the season. When you look at what was available, um, one guy everyone talked about was Charlie Morton, uh, who signed with the Rays Two years, $30 million. He was coming off a, a really good year in Houston. Um, I think he, he closed out the World Series in 2017, uh, right? Am I right there? I think. Yeah, um, you're right. You're right. And, you know, it, it was it wasn't like, you know, this guy looked, un, it looked like it was unsustainable and he wasn't going to be able to at least still be a really good pitcher. Um, and I think it came out that his family lived in Delaware and he wanted to play close to his family. And it looked like a guy that it would really make sense for the Phillies to sign. And then they weren't even, you know, rumored to be interested in him. And then obviously he finished, I think he finished third in Cy Young voting, had a great year and the, the Phillies rotation struggled mightily. But yeah, the, uh, I, I know they were connected to Corbin, at least somewhat Patrick Corbin who signed with the nationals. And ultimately, uh, you know, if the, Nationals kept Harper over over signing Corbin. Maybe they don't win the World Series this year just because of uh, kind of how their team was built. They relied so heavily on their starting pitching. Um, so who knows how those things would have played out if, say, the Phillies did sign Patrick Corbin. But there definitely were pitchers out there that they could have acquired, which was surprising. The only, um, the only other pitcher I remember them being really linked to 
was Nathan Eovaldi, and I think they wanted him as their closer. And yeah, they were not a starting to pitcher. Jay Happ as well, but uh, they may have dodged a bullet in that sense because Jay Happ, two years ago, he was great, very good, especially considering he pitched in the American League East. Last year, he was a disaster, and the Yankees won out of that deal if at all possible. Now, as far as the Charlie Morton deal, I wrote this at the time, so it, it's not revisionist history. Two years and $30 million for someone who was one of the best pitchers in baseball in 2018 and ended up being even better in 2019 was nothing. If Charlie Morton, God forbid, tears his UCL and doesn't pitch a game the rest of his career, two years and $30 million was worth it, even for the small market raise, because he balled out last year. He was a Cy Young finalist. Uh, the Phillies just... I don't understand why they didn't at least show some level of interest there. Uh, I know you had the injury history, but sometimes you have to be willing to take risks. And sports, especially baseball, are strange in terms of projecting career arcs. And you could tell there was something special going on with this type of late career I, I don't even want to say resurgence, his late career breakout that Charlie Morton has had. And I, I think not signing him and not even really seeming to be that interested in, in him is one of the biggest uh, failures of the Matt Klintak regime thus far. Yeah, I mean, they, they they signed him once, of course. And, you know, when he was with the Phillies, he was throwing 96, 97 out of nowhere. Um, and obviously he got injured. And, and you do wonder... Um, how things might have looked different if he didn't get injured that season and maybe showed over the course of a, a full year how, you know, he um, was kind of breaking out. Uh, but well, and the, the other thing is they had a $9 million option they could have picked up for him the year after when they were paying nobody major money. You had Jake Arrieta come in. Uh, the I'm not even, I'm getting years confused. But the point is, you could have picked that option up, and if he got injured again, so be it. You you weren't giving that money to someone else. You weren't contending that season. It's just they, they managed the Charlie Morton thing very poorly all the way around. It was a good trade to take a risk on. It sucks that he got injured. The DH should be in the NL, and that wouldn't have happened. But, I mean, after that, they did not handle the situation well. Definitely, yeah. And I, I one other guy I think they were linked to um, through trade was Mike Miner who that um, actually had probably the best, one of the best seasons of his career um, really since he left Atlanta. I know he had a couple straight seasons where he didn't pitch at all, but last year he was he was really good for the Rangers. And another guy who was good for the Rangers who was a free agent last year was Lance Lynn. Um, I think he had the highest F war in, in the American League, or not the highest, but like was top three, top four. Um, and they signed him for nothing. I think his his FIP I know was insane last he was, season. He was really good. Yeah, three I think three years, thirty million. So I mean that that one was I think he was coming off a disastrous season. So that one you couldn't see coming as much. But it really was curious that they that they didn't sign anybody because the rotation fell apart in 2018. Um, but I guess now we can move into the season, uh, starting with the the first three games, the the opening series against the Braves at home. Obviously, season opens with a, a leadoff home run from Andrew McCutcheon, and um, that first game was electric. Uh, Reese Hoskins hit a grand slam, and then next two games, Bryce Harper pumps out a couple home runs. And you know that that first series, it really felt like the Phillies had had built a really really special offense. 
but then obviously um, it didn't really hold out for too <laughs> for too long. But do you guys have any thoughts on that first series? Yeah, it was uh, like you said, it was electric uh, in Citizens Bank Park. It felt like kind of the excitement was back for this team, and uh, it didn't exactly hold all season. But um, their their offense was pretty crazy at the start, especially on opening day. And uh, it was just it was cool to see Bryce Harper make his debut with the team uh, wearing those fanatic cleats. Uh, I thought that was a, a nice touch by him. So thirsty. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, the Hoskins Grand Slam was a really cool moment. Um, just a as good an opening day weekend as you could ask for if if you're the Phillies. Um, Jake Arrieta had a good start on that Sunday night baseball, um, when, when Harper hit a home run on ESPN, uh, and they, they got a win and it was just a, a really, really cool opening weekend. Um, one of the, one of the best Phillies opening day weekends that I can remember. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's the best opening day in my lifetime, uh, being there, I, I it rivaled being uh, at the stadium in 2010 or 2011 when you were selling out every single night. And I did not enter last season. I, I thought the Phillies were a wild card team after signing Harper and trading for Real Muto. I thought there were still holes. But anyone that tells you after that series they didn't feel like, oh man, are, are the Phillies about to rattle off 97 wins this season and reclaim the NL East throne. Anyone that says they didn't have that thought is kidding themselves. Definitely. And, and yeah, I mean, it definitely, even though it, I think people knew that the, the starting rotation wasn't going to be great. I think it was clear, or at least it seemed at the time that, um, the, you know, the, the offense was going to be able to carry them throughout the season. Um, so I think instead of, of, of doing this exactly chronologically, um, so, Unless I'm mistaken, the Phillies only had three series sweeps last year. And I think it's interesting that each of them represented some what appeared to be like real momentum that didn't actually last. So there was this one against the Braves, which, you know, the, the Phillies did have a pretty solid start to the season. They were in first place in the NL East for a while. Um, you know, through the end of May, they were a good team. And then in June, they, they fell off a little bit and then... Um, they were they were in a in a real rut. I think they lost six or seven straight, and then the Mets came to town. Brad Miller brought a bamboo plant into the into the locker room, and they swept the Mets. And then don't I forget think, the curveball machine. True, the curveball. What was the curveball machine? Was that the same? It was. Yeah, it was that same series. Yeah. So that's whew. Bryce Harper was. Didn't he laugh at the curveball machine? And everyone yeah, he thought did. it was this whole. What this other whole, reaction were you gonna yeah, have there? Yeah. Every yeah, team definitely. uses those. That was a weird reaction. It, was a it wasn't a big suggestion deal. Suggestion to be in the middle of this uh, losing streak and be like, you know what? Yeah, use the curveball machine. No one's saying don't use the curveball machine, but to cite that as something where it's like, this is what our solution is. It it wasn't a good look. Yeah, definitely. Um, but in any event, so the curveball machine and the bamboo plant uh, in the locker room, which Brad Miller brought. They sweep the Mets in four games, capped by a walk-off uh, Gene Segura home run in that last game. 
And then all of a sudden it was like, all right, the tide's turning. The Phillies are, um, the Phillies are back. This is in late June, and people thought, all right, they're going to go on a little bit of a run here. And then it became more of the same for you know the rest of June and then July. You know they were up and down, up and down. Um, and then in August, like middle of August, they decide to fire uh, hitting coach. Oh, Ty, you're going to have to edit this because I couldn't think of his name. John Maley. John Maley. So they <laughs> they uh, fire John Maley and hire Charlie Manuel, which was honestly just a genius hire because, you know, best case, they start to hit and, you know, Clentac looks like and, and Middle, John Middleton, who probably or, who, he orchestrated the whole thing. They look like geniuses or they don't hit and it doesn't really matter because they were out of it or close to out of it anyways. Um, yeah, like they they would get no no one would criticize that move. Yeah, <laughs> that like yeah. that was definitely uh like that there was no wrong with that move. They could do yeah, no I wrong. Yeah, I think the biggest mistake is not doing it earlier. It was the same as when they fired Charlie Manuel in 2012. They did it like kind of after the C or 2013. Uh, they did it after the season was basically a wrap. Instead of doing it when you still had a chance to really catch fire they did it where the season wasn't mathematically over but it kind of felt like you you had uh your destiny was pretty much known yeah definitely and so you know they they bring charlie Manuel in and at, at this point i think people do do think all right it's, it's probably too little too late but you know they they sweep the cubs obviously one of those games they crushed crushed cole hamels um, I think it was it was Hamels versus Nola. Nola got an RBI hit off of him, um, and then you know they they really beat him up. I think he was probably out by the second or third inning. And then the last game of that series, obviously the biggest moment of the season was the Bryce Harper walk off grand slam. And I think the overall thing here is you know you have these three sweeps throughout the season, and each of them like the, at the time they felt like you know huge momentum and. This like now is when when the team turned things around or now, you know, this team's awesome. They're, they're going to start to win a lot of games. And then the rest of it was just mediocrity. Um, they could never really get anything going or build off of off off of the momentum that they that they got in these series. Yeah, this team, they made no runs uh, other than maybe like the first five games of the season. They're just um. They they just never went on the run that a lot of people expected them to do. They couldn't uh, put it all together and, and kind of just go on a winning streak or anything like that. Um, kind of, it's a little crazy that they were never really able to do it, but that's just how, how things played out. Like you said, uh, they, they had those things that looked like it might spark momentum, and it never really, really came. Uh and that's what kept them as a, a 500 team. They could just never pull off any type of winning streak. Yeah, and I, I did the research on this last year, and I don't remember if it was they never had a five-game winning streak or a six-game. E- either way, both are embarrassing. Like You look back at there's a lot of bad seasons to pick from in the last decade, and the Phillies had at least one or two five- and six-game winning streaks, and they couldn't put one together last season. So... 
yeah, it, it's a it's a bad look because they were certainly able to put losing streaks together in just bad months, but they weren't really able to put together any stretch last year that made you feel like, wow, this is a team that's going to challenge for the playoffs. Two years ago, they had some stretches early on. Last year, you just you, you never got that sense after the first week or so subsided. Yeah, it, like you said, I, I remember looking back, too, on, on baseball reference, and I can't remember which season it was, um, but I think one of the years during the rebuild, they, they never had a, a streak, a winning streak longer than four games, but like it was one time, and, and those teams were horrible. And the Phillies, yeah, the rotation wasn't wasn't good last year, but like that team was was good enough to go on a, a some kind of run. Especially when you consider like baseball, you play 162 games, and it's random enough that like basically any team should be able to do it. Um, so the fact that they didn't was was uh, a bad look. And um, I guess we can go back now and and talk about some of the individual players throughout the season. Uh, starting with Bryce Harper. So um, Bryce Harper, he had the really, really good start to the season. He had a couple home runs opening weekend. He hit, um, he had a really good week or series in Washington that first week. Uh, he obviously had the home run with the bat flip. I think well, the home run was off of, of Hellickson, right? Yeah, it was Hellickson over a bunch of Phillies fans into the second deck in right field. Yep. Um just a, a as as Ty refers to it, just like the most disrespectful bat flip of all time. Uh, yeah, that that was pure disrespect. <laughs> that it was pure disrespect to the Nationals. That was funny. Yeah, it was, it was almost so bad you should block someone on Twitter for it. I, yeah, that did get me blocked <laughs> on Twitter by someone. Yeah, uh, another story for another time, but uh. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was electric, and um, and then, you know, after the, I guess, April, really, the, the first half especially, for the, those first few months, Bryce Harper was just, he was just fine, like, he wasn't hitting a lot of home runs, um, he was still, you know, he wasn't horrible, he was still, like, a, a solid player, but that's not what the Phillies paid for, and um, looking at it now, like through through the end, even through the end of July, he had a 840 OPS, and it was it was like, come on now, like this guy. People people were getting mad, I think, because they they paid him so much money, and and he was you know he was getting out homered by Freddie Galvis at one point or close to, um, and then in August he just you know he he flipped a switch and he turned it on. Um, it was, you know, probably the hottest we've seen a player in, in Philly since, I don't know, Dominic Brown, like glory. Yeah. Yeah. It it was his August, his August was unreal. Um, and he, he carried that into September to an extent. Uh, he wasn't quite as hot in September, but it's interesting to, to think about where people thought he was in the beginning of August and how that changed um heading into the, the end of the season i mean he he raised his ops by like 44 points uh those last two months and and you wonder you wonder what people would think um if had it been switched had he been hot those first two and a half months and uh you know cold down the stretch if people would have would have thought of his season differently because i think everyone looks at it as a success 
Yeah, I would I would agree. I don't think anybody kind of sees it as anything um, but a success. I, you know, like you said, they hadn't seen anyone that hot since Brad Miller in June. So who <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who then matched it in in September? But um, he he was really good down the stretch for the Phillies, um, and kind of kind of made people realize what the Phillies. Um, what the Phillies got was what they kind of expected. And I think something to note is that Real Muto also got really hot at the plate around the same time. I know we were probably going to talk about him separately, but I think it's important to note that, um, you know, the reason the Phillies had any type of life uh, down the stretch was because of those two, um, at least a big part of it. They both, they both really hit um, near the end of the season and that that kind of kept them alive in the wild card race uh, in until pretty much the end of the season. They were both really good. Yeah, yeah and I, I, go ahead. Go ahead, Johnny. I was just gonna say I don't want to take credit for for Bryce Harper catching fire the last two months of the season, but um, on August seventh, I, I tweeted, um, you know, by season how many plate appearances it took him to get to twenty home runs. Um, at this point, he was at sitting at nineteen, um, and you know. Each of the prior seasons, it was, you know, 241, two, or 391, 337, 348. Here he was sitting at 500, so I was pointing out how bad he'd been. And that night, he hit his 20th home run, and the rest of the season, he had a OPS over 1,000. So I don't want to take credit, but I I did kind of turn his season around. My favorite series of the year, or game of the year, was the Friday night game in August in San Francisco because I, I remember I had just moved into a new place and a few of my roommates were like, oh, it's Friday night, let's go out. And in hindsight, now that we may not have bars the entire summer, I really regret not going out. But uh, part of me just thought, no, I love watching games in San Francisco where I was supposed to be watching the Phillies this week. I'm not bitter, though. Um, and I, I stayed in that night. It ended up being the night Bryce Harper hit two home runs and silenced the crowd, and it was an amazing game. And really what that made me remember is I knew by July 4th-ish last year, after that series in Atlanta, that the Phillies were probably not going to the playoffs. But as much as it burns to waste prime years from Bryce Harper and JT Real Muto, it makes it a lot easier to watch not good teams or mediocre teams when you have at least one or two guys on the team, which the Phillies did last year, and Bryce Harper and JT Real Muto, who you know, these are superstars at their peak putting up great production. And if you miss a game on a given night, you might miss an iconic performance because there were a lot of years, and I would say Aaron Nola had that type of season two years ago, but there were a lot of years from 2012 to 2018 where not only were the Phillies bad, but there really wasn't one individual performer to even get excited about. And one of the things that sticks with me from the second half of last year is that at a minimum, you at least had guys that were worth tuning in night in and night out for if you weren't like us where, you know, you kind of do this for a job. Yeah. And and so speaking of guys who definitely um, towards the end of the season were worth tuning in for, um, you know, this is a guy who the Phillies acquired in June or I think it was early June. Uh, yeah, it was June. It was June. June. Yeah. And uh, so he was Brad Miller had a he was like fine for most of the season, had obviously the bamboo plant thing. Um, 
and he was he I was remember, better than he was yeah. better than fine yeah he was good really, he was good but i mean his his ops in middle september was like 740 but i guess that was he was better with the phillies than uh, it was pretty much that with the phillies uh he had played with the indians for for a little bit in the beginning of the season but anyways uh so Brad Miller, who I remember Ty texting me in, in September something about how um, Brad Miller had the highest hard hit rate on the Phillies, something to that extent, um, a high exit velo. Um, and that really, <laughs> we really saw that the last nine games of the season. Uh, he had three multi-homer games, which I don't think, I, I remember seeing something that it's like the shortest span of games that a Philly has ever had you know, three multi-homer games in. Um, and it was just, I mean, at that point in the season, I know uh, JT Romuto was hurt or, and um, the Phillies were out of it, but it that was just something that was fun to watch. Um, Brad Miller tearing the cover off the ball. He, he started pretty much every day um, during that last week and a half. And he, he really, really produced. Yeah. When they, yeah, it, when they first got him, uh, they, you know, they needed help. On the bench, it looked like um, they got him from the Yankees organization, and then uh, he, like we talked about earlier, he brought the bamboo plant, and they swept the Mets, and he hit a a pinch hit. I think it was a pinch hit home run in one of those games. Uh, he pimped and, that, didn't he? Yeah, he he hit it, stuck his tongue out. He hit it, and then he strutted, and then he stuck his tongue out and ran, <laughs> which was which was pretty funny. Uh, he was he was fun to watch. He just he swung so hard, uh, and if he connected, like I said, he uh, he hit the ball so hard all the time. So even when the results weren't there um, until the very end of the season, uh, not that he was bad, but they weren't as as good as they ended up. Uh, he definitely hit the ball really hard, and um, it, he was like their best player in the last like in the last few series of the season. It, they were clinging on to their playoff hopes uh, with that that five game series with with the Nationals, riding Brad Miller, uh, <laughs> hoping he'd carry them into the playoffs. Uh, it didn't work, but it wasn't due to his lack of trying. Um, and then I'm I just still can't believe that they didn't bring him back. Uh, one of my favorite things that I've written for Phillies Nation uh, was I, I wrote this analysis about his season and why the Phillies should really consider bringing him back. Uh, I did that in the off season at one point and apparently they didn't read it because they, did, they didn't listen to me, uh, but he was really good. And uh, I think the Cardinals got themselves a good player. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and Brad Miller's one of these weird guys that spent such a small period of time here but I feel like when the Cardinals, well, I guess it won't happen this year in all likelihood, but if Brad Miller ever returns to Citizens Bank Park in any form, he's going to get like a standing ovation. It's strange to think about, but yeah, he was awesome. The the game you were referencing where he put his tongue out after the home run, Destiny and Brian and I were down there for Phillies Nation, and I've watched Bryce Harper and Ryan Howard, and I remember a shot that Hunter Pence hit. I've seen tons of home runs at Citizens Bank Park. I've never seen a ball hit harder at the stadium. I've seen Barry Bonds hit a home run, for Christ's sake. I've never seen a home run at Citizens Bank Park hit harder off the bat than that one. It was an absolute shot. And there is something so pure 
about a left-handed hitter that doesn't wear batting gloves just swinging to hit a home run every time. And that's why so many people in Jordan, because it, it worked. And uh, I remember the night they acquired him, I was producing a show at WIP for Joe Giglio. And like he did a, a half-joking tease about, oh, the Phillies just made a big pickup. We'll talk about it after the break. And it ended up being that they actually did make a, a pretty big pickup. Yeah, um, you know, as we've done these episodes, um, Ty and I have have pointed out these guys like Kevin Friends and, and Jeff Francoeur, who if they were on um, like the the Phillies during the playoff run, they would be remembered as folk heroes. And I think Brad Miller's another guy who kind of fits that. Like if he was, it'd be so fun if he was part of a, a playoff run in Philadelphia and and played some kind of role. You know, we we remember how guys like Chris Coast. Um, are remembered and, and he's just another guy who was you know Miller was unfortunately not able to be a part of a playoff run in Philadelphia although like Ty said they like one year two million dollars they should have signed him um, it really didn't make sense not to he would have been their best player on the bench um, their best player yeah he, he would have just been their best player I mean yeah he's everything that we were promised Justin Bohr was going to be a left-handed hitter, no batting gloves, like Ty said, or like Tim said, who crushes the ball. Um, Yo, can you imagine if there ends up being the DH this season? I mean, obviously they're in good shape regardless with Alec Bohm, but I mean, you could have had Brad Miller DHing, and I say that non-ironically, it would have been a pretty good option to have. Yeah, definitely. He hit when he because he what year was it in Tampa Bay that he? hit a bunch of home runs. I think he was a, he was a shortstop in for the Rays in 2016. He had 30 home runs. So it wasn't like this was out of nowhere like Brad Miller had never been good before. I don't know. Uh moving on, um so we talked about Re- Bryce Harper kind of having that that first half that was really good or really bad or not really bad but fine and then that second half that was really good. Um it's interesting to look at the flip side. Um with with Reese Hoskins so Reese Hoskins for the first half of the season it it really looked like he was building off of off of what he did in 2018 um he was the best hitter on the Phillies on the team by by a long shot a long shot for that stretch um and then you know we'd seen him be streaky before uh and that but we had never seen like a, a cold stretch for as long as as we saw last year his last two months were like as bad as I think we've seen from anyone on the, who's been on the Phillies, even during the, the bad years. Like it was unreal to see how lost he looks at the plate for, for such a a long time. And it really, I mean, it it really changed everyone's, you know, thoughts on him as a player. People wonder, um, you know, is he even good? Which I, I think we all agree that he's a, he's a good player, um, who had a bad stretch, and he's, you know, that doesn't make him a, a bad player, but it was, it was just brutal to watch. Yeah, that was, it was, there's not much else to say about it. It was just, uh, <laughs> like, it was one of the worst halves of base, halves of baseball that any Philly has ever played. Uh, it was not, it was frustrating to watch for everyone involved, probably him, himself the most, uh, but it it hurt the team for sure. Uh, as they were still trying to make the playoffs, and he just 
he he could not he couldn't find something that worked for him in that second half. It just it was not working out for him. And you know that probably is not him as a player, but they're going to need better production from him uh, going forward if they want to contend in the division. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, is unfortunate about a shortened season or no season is it's going to make it very difficult to evaluate what to do with players like Reese Hoskins going forward. If he has a few bad weeks, you say, oh, well, maybe it's time to go in a different direction. If he plays very well, but it's over a short period of time, you still don't really feel like you have an evaluation of exactly what he is and how you should proceed with your team. And defend, depending on how you feel about Alec Bohm's ability to play defense at third base, you're going to have to make some tough decisions, especially if you aren't sure the DH is coming. And uh, Reese Hoskins 2018, the second half, did not make it easy. He is someone that when he's locked in offensively, puts together a great at-bat, has power, gets on base, and I'm excited to see what changes he can make to that. I just don't know what type of sample size he's going to have. And for as good of a guy he is, and he's kind of taken on the role of being like the face of the Phillies in terms of being at events and speaking to the media, uh, they're going to have to figure out a way to have him have more value as a player, especially in these stretches where he's not locked in offensively. Yeah, it is. It's definitely interesting. Um, I think something that Ty and I have talked about on each of the episodes that we've talked about Reese Hoskins, which was 2017 and 2018 is, is how much that, that first stint in the majors kind of skewed how people view him. Um, you know, he's, he's not Ryan Howard. He's not, you know, a guy who's just going to hit Homer after Homer. Um, but at the same time, like he, he does have to be better than he was. Um, he, he's a guy who he should be able to, you know, get on base, you know, have a, a 380, 390 on base percentage and, you know, be a, a consistent guy in that batting, uh, that lineup. And, and he just wasn't able to do it. And I don't, like you said, it's just tough to tell, like, what exactly is Reese Hoskins? Um, but I, I don't know. You know, there was a, there was a comment on a, I, I forget who wrote the article about Reese Hoskins for Phillies Nation in August, but there was a comment about how, um, he, he got engaged and how like that was so selfish and that's why he was playing so poorly. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is why I don't read comments after the articles. Um, but if anyone was wondering his stats, pre-engagement versus post-engagement. Uh, so 156 games pre-engagement, he had was uh, slashing 256, 376, 535, and since then, 207 games, 226, 355, 463. Um, I think really that makes you think. It, it really does make you think. Um, well, and, and, and how did the stats change now that he's actually married? That's I, we'll that's, see. Yeah, we will see. Um, I think more importantly, he needs to go back to the the C flap helmet, but. The he's double still, one, yeah. yeah. He needs yeah. to go back to left field. He does need to go back to left field. I know his splits are better in left field. I spent a lot of time on Reese Hoskins' like baseball reference page last year um, because it, it was just fascinating. Like, I don't remember seeing someone fall apart like that um, midseason and just not being able to pick it up like at all. Like, he didn't show any signs of life 
maybe there was a couple games in Cincinnati he homered, but other than that in, in September. But other than that, he was just like like not there. Um, all right, we'll talk about JT Real Muto. Uh, so Real Muto, as Ty mentioned, kind of got hot at the same time at the same time as Harper. Uh, he wasn't you know, great at the plate the first half of the season, but he didn't really need to be like, I don't think anyone or most people were really complaining that much about JT Romuto's production because he was like so clearly the best defensive catcher in baseball that even though he wasn't um, hitting to, to the level that he had been in Miami, he was still just, he was clearly the best player on the team. Like, like Tim said earlier, uh, you know, he threw out, way more guys than anyone else did last year. I don't remember the exact caught stealing percentage, but I think it was in the high 40s. Um, he was just unreal. And then, obviously, those last two months, he caught fire and, you know, his, ended up having a, a offensive season similar to some of his best in Miami. Yeah, he was he was excellent for, for the Phillies, uh, especially in the second half. Offensively, the whole year uh, on, on defense – and great arm uh, and and pop time. He, you know, base runners they they tried to steal on the Phillies like kind of a lot because I guess I remember reading a quote from Real Muto somewhere that uh they tried to run on him because the Phillies pitchers were slow to the plate a lot of them were, but Real Muto was still able to throw so many of them out. Um, It'll be interesting to see, you know, he turned himself into a really good framer last season with the Phillies and that wasn't, it's not that he was bad, but that exactly wasn't his um, like strong suit when he was in Miami. But last season he was, he was a really good pitch framer. So it'll be interesting to see how his value might change um, now that the electronic strike zone might be put in place uh, this season and going forward. But they, they, um, you know, his his first year as a Philly was definitely as good as expected. Uh, and we we said what we did earlier about the trade, how maybe it doesn't age, um, that well. But it was definitely it looked good in the first season. Yeah, I mean, at least since Scott Rowland, that's the best defensive season I've ever seen a Phillies player have. So. It was incredible. I think he'll probably struggle to top that season defensively, but he had an excellent season. And I do think there's something to the idea that he could be even better offensively over the course of a full year because it is a lot to be traded a few weeks before the season begins and act like that's no big deal and just keep going along. And I do think there's an element to him where he had to change how he swung and how he hit because he's hitting in an entirely different ballpark than what Marlins Park was. And I think in the second half of the season, things really clicked and he really got to be comfortable hitting at Citizens Bank Park. So he's someone to me, again, like you guys said, we can have debates about whether this was the best way to build the team or this or that. He's one of last season is one of the best seasons, most complete seasons I've ever seen a Philly have. Yeah, I think it's it's a similar thing with Real Muto and Harper that it was kind of like a a change of scenery that uh, took them a little time to adjust. But once they once both of them adjusted, they they both obviously caught fire at the plate. Um, all right, so we should talk about Scott Kingery, who was you know one of the worst qualified players in baseball in 2018, and then um, 
you know, I don't think people really had much of an expectation for Scott Kingery because of that. And um, it wasn't like a, a great season all around because he did struggle at times. But um, like, I, th- I think people came away from from last season feeling a lot better about, you know, the contract that the Phillies gave him um, and, and Scott Kingery as a hitter and um, just his value. It was it was he played basically every position at some point and he played well. He played well in center field. Um I think third base was his weakest position, but but still, I, everywhere he played, he was he was good. And and I think um, you know, Ty, we've talked about it a lot. Like the the fact that they're just committing to him at second base next year is is kind of absurd because he's such a valuable guy because he can play everywhere. Yeah, I think that was a, a huge part of his season. You know, the Phillies were left with um, a lot of. A lot of question marks in their outfield. Um, well, we haven't touched on this yet, but um, they they did get Jay Bruce, who played a good amount of outfield for them uh, after McCutcheon went down, and then Odubel Herrera was suspended for the the rest of the season after a domestic violence incident, and they were left without their regular center fielder and their regular left fielder, and and Kingery was good in center field for them. Uh, they ended up bringing up Adam Hazley as well. But um, I, I think Kingery's defensive versatility, it it helps the Phillies in a lot of situations that they can, they can make things work uh, when they otherwise might not because he's able to fill in at almost any spot on defense. So if anyone's struggling, they definitely have a, a solution to be able to, to move things around. And um, I think that he was he was good last season. Uh, definitely, he struck out probably too much. But when you, especially when you can uh, compare it to his 2018 season, where he was <laughs> just really disappointing, uh, that was a good, good and invaluable season from Scott Kingery. Yeah, and I, I do think it would be wrong to ignore him when he thinks, yeah, I might put up better offensive production if I'm only playing one position. The question I have is, is that uh, improvement in offensive production so much better that it makes it worth losing his ability to shift all the way around the field at these different positions? Lots of people have gotten panicked that, oh, my God, what are they doing all these positions? Teams won World Series with Ben Zobrist. I mean, look at the the success the Dodgers have had with Kike Hernandez. You have to have this type of guy, and maybe that's not Scott Kingery, but I think second base is the most replaceable position in baseball, and forcing Scott Kingery to that position, I'm not sure you're necessarily helping your team long-term as opposed to having him continue to get better at that super utility role. I think that even if... You know, even if he says, all right, I, I would be a lot more comfortable just playing one position. If it's just the one position thing, like put him in center field. He's he's more I valuable agree. there. Like and I think I think like I was impressed last year watching him play because he played a lot more outfield last year than he did in 2018. And he's good out there. And the Phillies don't really have a clear answer in center field right now. You know, Adam Hazley's fine, but. There are some questions there, and, and I think putting Kingery in, in center field helps kind of 
Um, but I just think it's the most valuable way to use him. Well, uh, it is, especially once Alec Bohm comes up. Right. Because where this is the thing that doesn't make sense. Where are you putting Gene Segura when Alec Bohm comes up? You're putting him in the outfield? Like, it, you're putting his $14 million salary on the bench? Right. Exactly. Like, and people have asked, like, I think Joe Girardi said he, he wants to put Kingery at one position and just leave him there and, like, that he wants it to be second base. But that, like you you just said, that doesn't make sense. You're not going to bench Segura or Gregorius. You know, it, it, it there's... It's so easy just to put Kingery in center field and, and let everything else fill in. Um, well, and that's the other angle of this. It's not only what makes Kingery better, but what makes the rest of the team better. Is your team better with Gene Segura on the bench? No. Is your team better next year if Didi Gregorius leaves and you have Scott Kingery at second base and you have to put Gene Segura at shortstop? No. Yeah, e- exactly. Um, all right, this... Has definitely been our longest episode to date, so we're gonna we're gonna blaze through a, a few more things. Um, so just like Ty mentioned, the Phillies added Jay Bruce in in June. So they added him uh, just to touch on this. Uh, they added him, I think, a, a day or two after it had come out that Odubel Herrera was arrested um, for domestic violence um, against his girlfriend, um, and. Uh, Herrera was was eventually suspended for the season, and the Phillies. Um, well, they they he's he's still part of the um, sorry organization organization, but he's he's not on the forty man roster anymore. No one else uh, picked him up, but he didn't play at all um, last season. So the Phillies had to you know find someone to to play um, outfield to replace him. Obviously. Jay Bruce wasn't going to replace him in center field, but it was just another guy who could play somewhere in the outfield. So they, they acquired him. And uh, he had a pretty, like, unreal start in, in Philly. I, that, like, that first month, he was just uh, hitting home run after home run. He had a couple big hits. Um, it was it was pretty fun to watch. Yeah, he was, a, he was like, a, a pretty key player when he first arrived. I remember that... Um... You know, he, he played a lot of left when McCutcheon went down and that I think it was that same series in right. in San Diego. Bruce came out and I think he had two home runs in his first uh, his first start as a Philly. Um, okay, well, so, yeah, because they, they, they had acquired him after um, the Herrera incident and then pretty much right away, like a couple days later, McCutcheon tore his ACL. So um, Bruce became a, a bigger part of the, the team than they had like anticipated at first and he hit yeah i'm looking at it now he hit two homers and a double in that first start six rbis um yeah and then the next day he had a home run i'm pretty sure too yep he had he had a home run in those first three starts that san diego series is one of the most consequential series in recent phillies history you had bruce but you also had andrew mccutcheon Terrace acl and you had Sir Anthony Dominguez have whatever is going on with Sir Anthony Dominguez happened to him. And by the time he's back, it might be two years. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and Adam Hazley made his debut, too. Yeah. So, like Tim just said, they, they called up Hazley um, pretty much right after McCutcheon went down because um, they, you know, needed another guy. And, um, you know, back to Bruce, he got hurt in July. And then when he came back, he just like 
was not the same at all. Uh, it, it, I, he like didn't even play the field when he came back, did he? Yeah, well, so he came back for a game in August and then got injured again and then was gone. And then he came back again in September. And in September, he had he played in 17 games and he had two hits, um, both of them home runs, of course, because that's all he does. But um, yeah, and, and you know, the, the Jay Bruce trade is another, you know, thing that Matt Clintack did that uh, was pretty impressive because. Seattle's paying for most of of Jay Bruce's deal, and the Phillies didn't really give up. Who? What did they even give up in that trade? It was like just a, a just minor league lower yeah. level prospect. Yeah, um, and they I think they owe Jay Bruce two million dollars this year. And you know if there is a season, he's a valuable guy to have on the bench. Um, so that was an, another good trade. Um, but to to Stay in the theme of replacements in left field uh, at the trade deadline. Matt Klintak made another impressive move around the margins by acquiring Corey Dickerson from the Pirates. Um, you know, we, we mentioned last week how how Wilson Ramos and Corey Dickerson, they were similar acquisitions in terms of guys who, when they're healthy, are pretty clearly like really good hitters. And when they're not healthy, it, that just happens, you know, that they're they struggle to stay on the field. But when when Dickerson was on the field for the Phillies last year, he was a real difference maker. Um, you know, along with Real Muto and Harper, he was was a guy who was hot. And, um, you know, he had played 34 games and 34 RBIs like he was he got he hit guys in and, and he was a good hitter. Yeah, he was definitely very good uh, for the Phillies. And I think we should probably mentioned some of the other acquisitions that they made um, around the deadline. They picked up some starters. Uh, I, I, they got Jason Vargas um, to add to the rotation. And then this wasn't, I don't think this was a trade. I think this was a signing, uh, but they picked up Drew Smiley as well. So um, just like the season before, they kind of just added a bunch of, uh, veterans near the end of the season that they hoped would um you know really improve their team and it worked to you know not the best success but uh smiley was actually kind of good for the phillies and so was dickerson um vargas not so much smiley smiley had like three good starts i wouldn't say he was good for the phillies he was like he was fine i guess he wasn't any worse than what they had like the problem was like I think that the Dickerson trade made a, a difference, but everything else like if they wanted to actually improve the rotation, they should have they should have just went out and like traded for Zach Greinke. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they were close enough though. Even if you add Zach Greinke and take on the risk with that money, that that type of deal was worth it to be honest with you. But the the Dickerson deal was good and those are the type of if there is a trade deadline if there is a season i get the feeling the phillies are going to need to make that type of deal to acquire a center fielder if they're going to be a, a playoff team this year and one of the things i think people overlook in the 2020 season is that you talk a lot about the nationals the braves and the mets how good they are Corey dickerson went to the marlins sean rodriguez went to the marlins but the marlins made 
some nice under-the-radar signings. And the Phillies already were not taking care of the Marlins, and I think the Marlins have unquestionably gotten better. So, you know, it kind of ties things together because Dickerson was very good for the Phillies last year. I agreed with McCutcheon coming back and not investing those resources in him. But one of the things that happens with that is he's able to go somewhere, and that somewhere ends up being in your division. Yeah, I have... Ty can attest for the fact that I've I've said multiple times, um, you know, as as we've just been waiting for baseball to eventually start, that I think that the Marlins are sneaky enough to make a run in like a, in some kind of shortened season. Like that rotation is it's young and it's good. it's good it's good and they they just have guys in that lineup who you know have none of them have have, have had like super consistent careers, but like guys like Jesus Aguilar like have a career year or close to it they can win like, they can finish not last in the nl east and just I think say they, they could win it just say they could they win could, it. listen they, i don't know if they could win the nl east but they definitely could win the nl east i wouldn't even be mad if that happens like if <laughs> that'd be awesome San, if sandy alcantara goes like 10 and 0 and the marlins win the nl east how, how are you actually mad at that yeah a short season is going to make for some some fun stuff like i hope I hope something weird like that happens. Yeah. No, that's that's like the short season, especially I remember Corey Simon tweeted about what if the, the season was like 40 games and every every game was so important. That'd be so much fun. And baseball's so random that Michael Franco would win MVP and you know who knows like you know that's that's your best case at a Nick Pavetta Cy Young is is if there's only like 30 or 40 games. What are in the, the uh, what are the other cases of a Nick Pavetta Cy Young? <laughs> like, that's your only case of a Nick Pavetta Cy Young. Uh, yeah, that's that's probably true. Um, well, we're talking I, about Michael Franco. Oh, yeah, we can just touch on Franco and, and Hernandez quickly. Uh, Franco was the best eight hole hitter in in baseball history for about a week and a half. Yeah, he was the best eight-hole hitter until he was not, and then he was pretty yeah. not effective for the rest of the season. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I actually saw it last year was his best defensive season he's ever had, but still the range is limited. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think this idea that, oh, Gabe Kapler screwed Michael <laughs> Franco – Dude, he played for three managers, like four hitting coaches. <laughs> At a certain point, either you do it or you don't. Yeah, I love I love seeing people blame Gabe Kapler for uh, Franco struggling and saying like, "Oh, he didn't get a fair shot." What does that even mean? Like, he still started like a hundred. <laughs> he played so much. <laughs> he and, got half a decade worth of chances. Yeah, and I think I think Franco's one of those guys who people are gonna. I I don't know about you guys. I'm gonna root for him in in Kansas City. I think it'd be awesome to see him break out some at some point. Yo, I because th- I love these articles I get to write in the summer where it's like, oh, the Phillies let this guy go, and I, it's so predictable what the reactions are gonna be. But oh, yeah. it's it's so funny. Like, I I hope Michael Franco hits 25 home runs in like a 40 game season this year. Oh, that'd be electric. Um, yeah. And as far as Michael Franco defensively, you mentioned uh, it was probably his best season to date. My take on Michael Franco, like he's not a good third baseman. I don't think he just every once in a while, he makes these ridiculous like Nolan Arenado esque plays. 
Everyone's everyone's he's like, the jeter. What? He's the jeter of third baseman. I I accept that take. Like, he's no, made... I think there there is something too. He was pretty automatic when the ball was hit right to him, and a lot of third basemen are not. So I get that, and like you said, he would make those plays, but his range just limited. He probably should have been a first baseman. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think you know eventually if he's if he's able to start hitting, that's probably where he'll end up long term. But um, anyways, we can touch on Cesar Hernandez. Uh, so last year was kind of a disappointing year for Cesar Hernandez. Uh, there was a, a two week period where he forgot how to play second base. Um, which was rough, and he he hit for I think a stretch in like May and June, but otherwise it was uh, another like just like not his best offensive season. He he struggled in 2018 too, and I know he added a lot of muscle in the off season, and so he, his slugging percentage is actually one of his highest. But he he was not you know the same guy. He wasn't walking a lot. And he wasn't getting on base to the same uh, rate that he had in, in previous years. And obviously the Phillies let him go, which I think was probably the right call. Yeah, um, they really needed a leadoff hitter after McCutcheon went down. And I think a lot of people thought that he might be the guy. And he just couldn't get on base the same way he uh, was once able to do for the Phillies. Um, like you said, that two-week stretch where he made a lot of defensive blunders was interesting to say the least. Um, you know, he's always just been like a, a solid player for the Phillies. Uh, even though last year wasn't as great, like it, it, it wasn't awful either. Um, and that he's just kind of, he's just kind of, he is what he is. Um, I, I think he'll continue to be a solid player going forward. Um, another thing with him last season I'm pretty sure he wore like a like a 76ers playoff T-shirt underneath <laughs> his jersey every game, which was he was still like, interesting. doing it in September. <laughs> like like did, they lost to the Raptors. Like they weren't you watching? Like, <laughs> no, he um he's one of those guys. I think his 2016 and 2017 seasons were greatly underappreciated, and then 2018 he was banged up. He actually I think walked and saw too many pitches for his own good. But then he came back last year healthy and didn't walk at the same clip. Like, he was someone that you could get 65 walks out of for a few years, and then he walked 45 times last year. His on-base percentage dropped by about 40 points, largely because of that. And I I don't know. I I think he's a better fielder than he showed last year, and I think the Indians are a World Series contender, and going there is going to help him. But, yeah, he, there was definitely some decline over the last couple of seasons. Yeah, he's he's definitely, like, definitely a, a, the kind of guy, like, the Indians would, would pick up. Just under the radar, cheap, but, like, I think he'll be pretty good in Cleveland. Um, I guess we should talk a little bit about the, the starting rotation. Um, I think the probably the biggest story, honestly, was heading in, everyone kind of just was like, all right, you know, there's all these question marks, but at least there's Aaron Nola. Aaron Nola is going to be Aaron Nola. He's going to contend for a Cy Young Award again. Um, and then he just, he was not the same guy. Uh, the first couple months, he really struggled. And then he had his typical July, August stretch. And then again, in September, he, he fell apart. They lost his last seven starts, I think. They lost his last 
yeah, seven starts. So, uh, I mean, what do you guys think about Aaron Nola's 2019? It's not not like it was bad. Like, it was not a bad season for a major league pitcher. But, um, you know, after what happened the year before where the rotation fell apart, uh, but he was so good overall, I think they were banking on another season like that. Uh, and it just it it didn't come, um, you know. It, another another example of just things not going um, the way that the Phillies might have thought. Uh, and so he he was worse, and so was basically the rest of the rotation. And it really it definitely hurt the team. Uh, their starting pitching just wasn't there. Um, they they. Uh, they couldn't recover from their lack of starting pitching. They tried to pick up some guys like like I mentioned before, but uh, that didn't really work out either. And it just um, it hurt them that they didn't pick somebody up in the off season. Yeah, it felt a little bit to me like a Cliff Lee season where he wasn't as good as Cliff Lee, obviously. But when Cliff Lee was locked in, he was automatic. But when he wasn't, Cliff Lee would have some bad starts, and Aaron Noah had some clunkers last year. And I mean, I think he stands to benefit the most. I know this is like a meme on Philly's Twitter, but if they play in a warm weather place in 2020, Aaron Nola is going to thrive. All right. My, my take on warm weather, Aaron Nola, I don't think it's real. Like a lot of, like he has fallen apart the last two Septembers because he he has never thrown that many innings before. And I think it's, been mostly a product of fatigue like maybe there's a little bit of of him being unable to pitch in cold weather uh he definitely struggled last april but it's not like he was struggling in in april may uh, of 2018 i just think personally like this is something me and ty have talked about a little bit i subscribe more to the idea that he just gets really tired at the end of the season and you know he he's just not able to throw um his last 20 or 30 innings of a 200 inning season at the, at the same uh, production as the rest of the season. And if, if that's the case, that's a definitely yeah. a big, that's, that's <laughs> not good. If you want to be a, a title contender, uh, if the ACE of your rotation can't, um, can't last deep into a season, like what does that really say about your team? It doesn't seem like you have much of a chance and maybe, um, maybe a short season, is better for the Phillies in that regard. I know everyone will be a little more fresh, but it maybe after um, once the short season is finished, that's when the pitchers might really be starting to get going. So that'll serve well for Aaron Nola if the Phillies can make the playoffs. The only trade-off to that is in a short season, you might not have Zach Wheeler for part or all of the season. So uh, it might be Aaron Nola and a cast of characters again, like it's largely been for the last year and a half. Yeah, just just make Nola start every other game. He'll be fine. Short season. <laughs> they would have had to hire Dusty Baker to get that result. <laughs> I I do think um you know I think cold weather might have something to do with it, just because maybe this is kind of anecdotal, but it just seems like when they're playing somewhere cold, he's just not as sharp. Um. But I think the fatigue thing also has something to do with it. Uh, and it, it seems like he even gets tired, um, you know, within starts. I 
he does not typically go complete games. Uh, he's never had a complete game, and I don't know if he's ever even pitched into the ninth in his no. career. So uh, that's definitely something that's a possibility. Yeah, that was a that was a change last year that that did he like he was able to pitch into the seventh or eighth inning um, with relative ease in 2018, and he struggled with that a lot last year. I know I looked at the splits at some point, but you know, if you look at his first six innings and you look at how he's done in the in the seventh inning and then the eighth if he's pitched that far, he's just really really struggled in those late innings. That was like the, one of the uh, biggest things that hurt him last year. Um, and like yeah, it it definitely could be cold weather, and whether it's cold weather or it's um, fatigue, like both of those are really bad when he plays for a team in the Northeast. Like if they're gonna make the playoffs, like that's not not good. Um, yeah, ne- neither is a, a great sign. Yeah. Um, but uh, we can link or lump the rest of the the rotation together, um, because it was mostly just like guys not being able. I guess Zach Eflin was probably the best guy not named Aaron Nola last year. Um, he had uh a really good stretch to start the year. And then he had a horrible stretch in July. And then um, he stopped throwing his fastballs up in the zone. And in my opinion, lucked into seven good starts to end the year. Uh, Although some will say that he should be throwing uh, the sinker, which I disagree with in the year 2020. But I mean, what what do you guys think about Zach Eflin? Yeah, I'm more of a, I think when, when he was using the fastball, it was working for him, but uh, the, the forcing fastball, but also at the same time, I guess if it's something he's not exactly comfortable with, uh, you know, maybe it won't be effective long term. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know. It was, you know, there are a couple different versions of Zach Eflin in 2019, and who really knows what they get going forward. It'll, yeah. it'll depend on his pitch mix and. Uh, you know, results, of course, also. Yeah, and over the past two years, he's gotten off to these really good starts, and I've cautioned people essentially saying he's outperforming things like FIP, which obviously the Phillies value, and that suggests that regression's coming, and people say, oh, no, we had baseball for 100 years before sabermetrics, <laughs> and then he regresses and ends up in the bullpen in the middle of the season. So that's consistently what he's been over the past two years, and you are not going to outperform metrics for maybe you'll do it once for an entire season in your career, but probably not even that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Zach Eflin's fine. Uh, maybe he'll be like a, a number five for the Phillies for, for a while. But um, I think some people may think he's more than he actually is because he's had these stretches where he's looked really good. Obviously there was um, June of 2018 was his probably the best stretch of his career, but um yeah definitely like you said his his metrics um show that he's he's probably a little worse than than what he's shown during those stretches um for nick pavetta was it was kind of a weird year uh he was the number two to start the season and then after like five starts um they had seen enough and they sent him down which was kind of a surprise to everyone and then he was he was down in triple a for a while they called him up he had two really awesome starts, one against the Dodgers and then a complete game against the Reds. And then, you know, it, it kind of um, went back downhill for him again. I, what takeaways did you guys have from, from Pavetta's season? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, in one word, it was a disappointment. Uh, you know, a lot of hype going into the year for him, and it just didn't pan out that way. I was actually at his uh, I was at his start against the Nationals, where um, or you know, early in the season where he was pretty ineffective, and then Aaron Altair ended up coming in to pitch. Uh, which was just, you know, a, a fond memory for me. But uh, he, he he had some, you know, he had that, that start, I think it was against the Reds, where he threw a complete game. Uh, he had a good start against the Dodgers as well, and he had some success in, in you know, glimpses in the bullpen. But he was just never really able to figure it out last season. Uh, and, yeah, I think they were banking on him being good in the rotation and it just never came. Yeah. That, that game in Detroit where he pitched in the bullpen made me a lot more intrigued about what he could be in that role than, uh, wanting to see him start again, but really my takeaway and Gabe Kapler said this without saying this, he mentally has not been tough enough to make it through the ups and downs of pitching in the major league so far. And maybe that's something he'll grow into, but until he does that, I don't believe he's going to be consistent in any role. And it makes banking on him or betting on him, which I don't really think the Phillies have done for this season, uh, not great. If you get something from him, the more the merrier. But if you don't, that's kind of what you should expect at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I just think watching him, like when, when you see the, the pure stuff that is there, it's... Um, it's hard not to envision him at least, you know, even as if he's a failed starter um, becoming, you know, obviously not to the level of success that Andrew Miller has had, but, but something like that in the bullpen. But like you said, if he can't figure it out mentally, then it really doesn't matter where he is. Um, but uh, last couple guys in the rotation, um, Jake Arietta and Vince Velasquez, um, Arietta, I think he had like a decent start to the year and then just trailed off. And then obviously the bone spurs and he was, you know, gutting out these, these five inning performances and, uh, eventually they just shut him down for the year. Um, I think everyone is, uh, out on Jake Arietta. I think he's like in general, one of the like fans, least favorite players in Philly since probably Jonathan Papelbon. Um, and that contract just in general is, is not looking like uh, it was a, a smart move. Yeah. Um, I think both Velasquez and uh, Arietta both kind of, they were what they were. They, they were what they, what they are. Um, I, I think it is just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to expect much more out of either of them. Uh, they just, kind of they were what they've shown to be uh maybe arietta was a little better in 2018 but i think at this point um it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to expect anything more from him yeah people talked all season long about how much of a mistake it was that the phillies counted on the trio pavetta velasquez and Eflin, but it was just as much if not more of a mistake that they banked on jake arietta doing I, i don't know what they expected but uh They'd be foolish moving forward to expect him to be anything more than a number four or five. And beyond what he's shown when he's pitched, he hasn't stayed healthy in a few years now. So the idea that, oh, yeah, he's just going to come in and stay healthy for the full season, probably not. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I have said on this podcast a couple times that Jake Arrieta is going to bounce back uh, in 2020. Um, I don't know if I feel that now. Uh, I think it was just me talking, <laughs> to be completely honest. Um, but at the same time, I just... I feel like sometimes for guys when they when they start to lose the same stuff that they had that it takes them a little bit to figure out how to pitch and like I don't think there I think there's still a scenario where Jake Arrieta is a productive guy for the Phillies in 2020 if there is a season um, and I also think that the Bone Spurs might have you know played a role in him struggling a lot last year but in any case. Um, one more big thing we should talk about, and then we can wrap things up. So, um, obviously the Phillies bullpen in 2020 was, or sorry, 2019 was met with a lot of bad luck. Um, as Tim mentioned, Sir Anthony Dominguez got hurt in San Diego. Now is probably getting Tommy John surgery, you know, several months later. Um, and, uh, David Robertson got hurt and a lot of guys were ineffective, um, Tommy Hunter was hurt. Pat Neshek was hurt. It, Adam Morgan. Adam Morgan, who was effective in the beginning of the season, got hurt. It was, you know, heading into the season, it looked like Matt Klintak had put together a solid bullpen. And then, um, you know, two months in it, it fell apart. But one guy who, um, obviously we talked about Jose Alvarez earlier, but another guy who um, I think exceeded a lot of people's expectations and and was really the the guy who, um, the best guy in the in the bullpen last year was Hector Neris. Um, you know, he had, I think, a short stretch in June where he was not uh, super effective. But for the most part, he was really, really good. Uh, Might have been his best season. And he I think he ended the, the year on a 27 innings uh, stretch where he allowed like two or three runs and, and was had the lowest ERA of any reliever in baseball. So. Overall, it was a really, really effective season from Hector Neris. Yeah, um, he also had a couple run-ins with the the Dodgers, who have kind of owned him in the past. He, uh, you know, he he closed out that one game and then was arguing with the bench, if I remember correctly, and and then the the one game he uh he hit a batter with a pitch. I think it might have been David Freese, and then he got a he got ejected, and then I think Gabe Kapler also got ejected, if I remember correctly. But um, it was a really good season for Neris. Uh, they increased how much he would use his splitter, and that really was effective for him. It's one of the more, um, it's one of the more deceiving and and really good pitches in baseball. Uh, and he throws it so much that he it's almost like fastball usage for him. Uh, and then he kind of sneaks in the fastball, which is uh, kind of sneakily effective. He uh, puts that in there sometimes, too. But it was a really good season from Neris. Uh, I think I think he cemented himself last season as one of the better closers in baseball. I think the issue with projecting bullpens year to year, though, is we don't know that that carries into this next season. I think one of the things we're talking about now is there's a lot of questions in the Phillies bullpen, but certainly Hector Neris and Jose Alvarez are stable. We don't know that. Two years ago, Hector Neris was at Lehigh Valley in the summer, and Jose Alvarez was pitching in Anaheim. So 
hopefully those two continue to do that and you get better production, but it's just almost impossible to project a bullpen year to year, especially when you don't know what's going to happen with Ranger Suarez and Nick Pavetta and Vince Velasquez. Are they going to start relieve or some of both? Is David Robertson going to come back? There are a lot of questions in the bullpen, and it certainly hasn't been helped by the fact that it looks like you're going to be without Sir Anthony Dominguez, at least for this season. And the longer this drags out, he might miss most or all of next season. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with Sir Anthony Dominguez, it, it definitely, um, I think if if he could have avoided surgery and he was told that, then obviously avoiding surgery was the the smart move but now obviously it it looks like he's gonna have to get tommy john surgery and that's you know i think he was hurt in early june so we're almost 11 months removed from that incident or that injury and it's just you know he missed probably what a whole season um if he had gotten it then he would have been able to you know be back Definitely for the 2021 season, and now he he won't be. But um, in any case, uh, do you guys have any final thoughts before we we wrap things up? Um, I hope I just these wanted... are the final two hours I ever spend talking about the 2019 Phillies. <laughs> they probably won't be. It was an interesting year, a disappointing year for the Phillies. Uh, I think that's something we definitely have to kind of touch on. There's a lot of hype, and the Phillies underperformed, and I think. Uh, it's I, I know Tim talked about this on uh, the one episode of Locked on Phillies, but this is probably one of the more disappointing Phillies seasons of our lifetime. Yeah, and I got criticized for saying maybe ever because uh, the five people that listened to Locked on Phillies that were alive in 1964 didn't appreciate <laughs> that. So it's the most in our and pretty much everyone <laughs> listening to this is lifetime. Yeah, definitely. And they... It was weird because in the middle of September, they were still like two and a half games out of the wild card at one point. But even though they were right there, I think everyone kind of felt like this team's out. Um, and obviously, Gabe Kapler was fired and um, it was really the end of an era. Yeah, it was. All right. Um, so, Tim, thanks again for coming on. Um Hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Hopefully we'll have baseball to talk about soon. That isn't from the past. Um, I'm not suggesting we make this a podcast on the KBO, although that does start next week, I think. So we might have to talk about Ben Lively and Aaron Altair. But, um, you know, I think Sean O'Sullivan's bouncing around in there. Really? I believe so. Yeah, he was recently. What do you think the name recognition among Phillies fans is for Sean or, or uh, Sean O'Sullivan? I don't know. If they've seen the video of him getting hit in the throat, they know who he is. <laughs> True, yeah. I don't know. No, was... he, has been out, he has been out of the KBO for like two years, so I was wrong. I think KB, or Sean O'Sullivan was like the worst Philly I've ever watched. Yeah, but he produced one of the greatest memories. True. Getting it, getting it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I, obviously this was the the rebuild rankings, and this is 2019. So, Ty and I aren't exactly sure, but what will come with next week? Um, you know, like I said, worst case, it's a KBO podcast, and we get to talk about some former Phillies. But at any rate, thanks again, Tim, for coming on. Uh, and until next week. Uh, yeah.
You can listen to the Phillies Nation podcast with Ty Daubert and Johnny Heller every Wednesday on philliesnation.com and all streaming services.